Wait. Oh my gosh. T.O. Oh. Because. Yeah. Oh, well, I'll bring it up later. I was going to find my story and, and bring it onto the screen so I could later present it to you as we, oh. you know, you know how sometimes we tell like stories mm-hmm. on this show? You know what? I forget. Honestly, I, I forget know, that we do. I know. Well, I thought like maybe this time around we'd, why not? Like we're here. Why not? We're on Zoom. We're, you know. Banter-wise, one thing I just wanted to say that I thought might be fun to let them know, them being you, you being the dear readers, um, (laughs) was that yesterday I did share with Carrie that there is, maybe you guys have this too, that, um, and I I actually took the idea from Adam, so I have to credit him, that he has um, a note on his phone that says things I hate, and it's sort of... um, purges like a nice feeling to add things to it because you're discovering in the moment a thing you hate you're bummed out but it's kind of nice to add it to notes and I shared with Carrie um my hate list and she helped add a really good one to it which is watching sex scenes in movies with a parent I have to say this came up organically or should I say orgasmically no 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 it came up organically um I for the first time, I watched Top Gun, Top Gun with my dad. Mm-hmm. It's one of my dad's favorite movies, and my sister and my dad watched it all the time. And you know, dad was like, "We saw Maverick. I, you have you seen it yet?" I go, "I haven't seen the first Top Gun." He's like, "What?" My mom was like, "What?" I was like, "This is your fault. This isn't my fault. You never showed it to me. I was too young when it came out." So my dad was like, "We're watching it tonight. That's it. We gotta watch it." And then the next night, we saw Top Gun Maverick. So I had like this nice little like movie marathon with my dad, which was very fun, very sweet. But that sex scene comes on with Tom Cruise and like so 80s. Take my breath away. It's it rules. And Tom Cruise and like the way that they filmed it in like blue light. And I it's it feels so graphic in that it's literally just a silhouette and you see his tongue go in her mouth like it's so like tongue heavy making out and it made me so wild and comfortable <laughs> god your whole body's like shaking i'm like i'm like oh god i can't like don't make eye contact don't talk like just like just like pretend like and you get in like a cold sweat cuz i'm just anxious and nervous and i like i hate this and then i had this idea okay this is my pitch Saturday Night Live, if you're out there listening to this episode, don't steal my idea. But basically, it's an add-on where you'd watch a movie and anytime there's a sex scene, you get like a political prompt that will that will incur like a, a, a heated political discussion. Because frankly, I prefer that over watching a sex scene with That's my parents. saying a lot. I mean, especially with um, how your parents politically lean. Well, my parents are. Wait, I want to be very clear. My parents lean opposite ends right. of their spectrums. So like I should say your are father. T- you would rather talk to your father about politics than watch. My a- dad and I talk politics all the time. Because okay, listen, I know saying this probably is like what, but I, my dad rules. I love my dad so much. He and I don't agree on things politically. That doesn't mean I don't love him very, very much. And I think it's awful that we have to say that now based on where we're at politically. But like. 
my dad is so kind, so nice, so lovely, but like he doesn't believe in healthcare for all. And I, that is something I fully believe in. So it's like have that prompt come up and then like talk about that, which I think would be so fun. And you'd rather do that than focus on Tom Cruise's tongue. Yep. Got it. hundred million <laughs> thousand percent. Copy that. Thousand million percent. Um, I have Ugh. to tell you that, um, you know, my sister is pregnant and I was talking <gasps> Wait, to- what? You know that. <laughs> Stop. What if, what if I waited this long? She's a month out and I'm like, <gasps> right. land. She's going to have the baby next month. And I was, and Koa said to me, um, Koa calls the baby sweetie pie. And I he thought he called it cutie pie. I have video no, cutie pie. You're right. Cutie pie. I have a video that I've shown my parents. He said, kids. Um, is cutie pie have all his body parts yet? Like, has Brianna built all <sighs> the body parts? And I said, yeah, I think at this point, all the body parts are built. Cutie pie is just still growing. And Koa thought about that and said, I don't think cutie pie has a mouth yet because I think cutie pie is still eating through his penis. You know what? Kids should be teaching sex education. That's smart, right? He's thinking he doesn't totally understand umbilical cord, but I really like that he told me cutie pie is still eating through his penis. (laughs) It makes sense. I think for a boy to be like, there's this thing that attached to your mom, and why wouldn't it be a penis? (laughs) My mom told her friends at tennis that, and one of them told her about, um, I think, their grandchild and how um, they just like, pooped in the potty for the first time and looked in the toilet and went, look, I made sushi. <laughs> as far as I'm I concerned. I think I might have that story a little wrong, but uh, I'm going to tell it keep that it. way. Keep, well, I, what part of our podcast do you think actually is like fact-checked? Do you know what I mean? Like what part of our podcast do, do you think that we are telling true stories? We're telling stories that are entertaining. <laughs> Um, Speaking of fact-checking, Carrie and I have been recently introduced to some fact-checkers. Oh, my God. Have we ever? Should we tell everybody that the truth of the matter is that today you're going to hear two stories, and these two stories we're going to tell are going to be for the foreseeable future, the last stories. You hear on the you podcast, can't lead with that. Truly Darkly Creepily. You can't lead with that. No. Okay. I can lead however that, I want. Lead however you want, but that is such bummer news. We have because to lead with good you, news first. No, you're absolutely wrong. You always do bad news first because then people go, oh, no, Truly Darkly Creepily's ending. This is their last episode, and they're so sad. And then you go, wait a minute, got you, because we have a bunch of good news that's going to make you feel better. Enter okay, Carrie. so bad news, good news first. Okay, so Quinn and I are so excited to finally announce to you that we will be the co-hosts for a new true crime podcast with Lifetime called Crime of a Lifetime. Can you believe? <gasps> we are so excited. We just can't hide it. We It was so hard. You know the last couple of weeks we've been like, should we tell them? But contractually, we actually weren't 
allowed to. So we're here to tell you that we have a new podcast called Crime of a Lifetime. It is wherever you get your news feeds. It's going to be not your news. Quinn and me. It will not be on the news. It won't be in the news. It's going to be where you get your podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, all that good stuff. You're going to find Crime of a Lifetime. And it's going to be a little bit of a different format for Quinn and I where it's not going to be book report um, research. It's going to be actually well-researched. It's going to be well-researched stories. The idea is that we're going to take headlines or news articles that feature a true crime story, and then we're going to double down and investigate and look at the story, take a closer look at it, look at what became, what happened before, what came to be after. And it's going to be, in a word, magnificent. And it's going to drop every Tuesday starting June 14th. So Usually we would be telling you on the 10th of June that we're not going to talk to you in a week, but really we're going to talk to you in four short days and via four short days crime of a lifetime via crime of a lifetime. It's so exciting. I have to give props to our friend and listener, Becca, who connected us with them and it's been just, it's just been so cool. It's a little bit of a different format where Quinn and I are going to be telling one story an episode together, but it's, it's so fun. There's music, there's actual Foley art, not me playing with Quinn's leaves. You guys, it's profesh. It's it's super exciting. It's so profesh. But listen, for those of you who actually like our unprofesh sort of energy, we're able to still provide you with some unprofesh energy. We are allowed to keep our Patreon up, which we are so excited about. So if you want to hear our banter about like Quinn's life with two kids and a wonderful husband, and you want to hear my life with no children and no husband, I think you can find that on <laughs> Patreon. Yeah. Also, because we are allowed to keep Patreon, we're not going to do true crime on Patreon. If you want to hear us talk about true crime, the only place to hear it starting June 14th is Crime of a Lifetime. There will not be any new uh, Truly Darkly Creepily episodes released. So that's where to go to hear Carrie and I talk about true crime. But if you want to hear us talk about other dark things like the paranormal or animal attacks or alien abductions, we are still going to be telling our usual fare of two stories in the Patreon feed, along with our, you know, usual updates on our lives. And just because um, we love our Patreon subscribers so much, they're the reason that we kept going. They're the reason we're here today. They gave birth to us. We are going to double the Patreon content and we're going to give you two episodes a month with, you know, if you're already part of Patreon and you're at that $5 or above level, you're, you're, you don't need to do anything. Just sit tight and you're going to keep getting episodes. It's so exciting. I hope you guys are excited. They're dancing right now. I feel it in my heart. I feel it in my head and I feel it in my butt. You guys are dancing. Yeah, balls off. And we'll move on to say, speaking of Patreons, Jody, 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 we love you so, Modi. Jody, Jody. How about Ashley? <gasps> Ashley, you bring Ashley, out a flash of your Ashley energy. It's made out of stars and love and swirls and squiggles and diamonds. Ashley, Flashley. I want to know 
I want to know what at who Ashley, what their last name is. You do? I don't. I don't. I didn't write it down. I know so many Ashleys. Oh, but this Ashley is a really good one for sure. I can't wait to get to know you, Ashley. (laughs) I can't wait wait to get to know you better. What about (laughs) Bailey? Dr. <gasps> Bailey. Dr. Bailey. Wow. I just have a doctor. Land. Yeah, because you're thinking of Grey's Anatomy. I am. I always Do I am. Do you watch Grey's Anatomy? Um, oh, I was awesome. a, an OG watcher. So in the beginning, I watched a lot. And then when they kept changing up the whole damn cast on me, I was like, that's enough. I'm out of here. <laughs> you said, I'm, that, was, that show was, anyway, let's wait. Bailey, Bailey, you're so... Amazing. You're saying, Bailey, Bailey, the word bail is part of your name, but you didn't bail on us. You stayed just the same. same. Being a fan and a total support to the podcast and the book reports. Yes. Wow. Wow, 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 wow. Should we tease that we do have one final episode coming out next week? Yeah. So, oh, another thing. <laughs> the way you said it. Yeah. Go ahead. Oh, we have another episode coming out next week. Yeah. So don't worry. This isn't the last Truly Darkly Creepy. Next week is going to be a fun banter-filled little preview for next uh, podcast. In addition, we're going to do kind of like a best of. Quinn and I are going to ask one another some questions about the pod. Yeah, we thought that like we this is going to be, I think, our 130th episode. So next week we thought before saying goodbye, we would just take one episode to like reminisce, look back at um, – all the years gone by and the 130 episodes and how we've grown, changed, gotten so much more beautiful and sweaty. And we would also <laughs> get to maybe play you guys a little clip of Crime the of new show. So that's that's what you can get excited about for next week. So don't don't not come to that final party because it's going to be. Do you know what I mean? Don't not come. Chain. Oh, wow. This is so exciting. Well, by the way, you're listening to Truly Darkly Creepy with That's Quinlan Posner. Carrie Oh, you're going to do. Oh, guys, we're we're zooming. So it's a little awkward. But I think that's <laughs> I would I wouldn't have it any other way for this last story. <laughs> yeah, I'm excited. I think you go first, don't you? Because I think you're evens. I'm odds. Are you cereal? Are I think you I'm- so cereal? I am cereal. Quinlan Tiffany Posner. <laughs> I wish. Fiffany. It's Fiffany. Um, <laughs> all right. Let me get myself set up. Okay. Now, this is a story. All about how? The Baker Street robbery happened. And it is also <laughs> known as the walkie-talkie robbery. Let's fucking kinda go. Kind of silly. Kind of silly names. Hey, um, Quinn, guess what I'm doing? I'm buckling up. Click, click. We're here. Get ready. I'm ready. Wikipedia, History by Day, Independent, uh, and The Mirror are the places that I learned most of this information. In 1970, Anthony Gavin is a 38-year-old photographer. He lives in North London, and he just read this book called The Red-Headed League. It's, an, it's written in 1891, and it's a short story by none other than Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. 
It's ah, a, a Sherlock, Sherlock story. Fame? Yes, it's a Sherlock story. You know, this is the second time you brought up Sir uh, Conan, uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Is that his name? Mm-hmm. This is the second story you've brought him up. You well, also brought him up in the fairies. I feel like if we're not all Sherlock we fans, home, Sherlock Holmes fans. <laughs> oh God. Good night. Sherlock fans, Holmes. Fans, Holmes. <laughs> if we're not all fans of Sherlock Holmes, then who even are we? Cares. Yeah. Who, who cares? even cares? <laughs> who even cares? I love Sherlock Holmes. It's a story about people breaking into a vault. And in the story, Anthony's reading it and he's like, you know what? This is the perfect story. One note. It is fiction. And I feel like it could be fact. And I'm going to go ahead and use it as an outline. So he starts planning this burglary to rob Lloyd's Bank at... 187 Baker Street, which is like, if you know um, Sherlock Holmes. It's 22B Baker Street. Yes. So fun. So he wants to rob this Lloyd's Bank in London. He used to be a physical training instructor. And I don't know if it was there or where, but he basically has connections to a bunch of different criminals. It What I picture is an Ocean's Eleven meeting definitely took mm. place. Like, enter a montage where he walks around and he's like, hey, you're good at karate and you're a math whiz. And what's important, though, folks, is that we all have fun. So he's in a gang, Gavin is, and it's headed by this guy, Brian Reeder, who's also involved in this burglary. Although he'll tell you he wasn't. I'm going to do a quick background on Brian, though, just so you okay. get like a picture of this guy. He has been a robber forever. He started when he was like 11 and he started breaking into stores. And over the next 20 years, he got more and more into burglary. And in the 60s, he started working with Britain's like top guys, top robbers, really. He would avoid getting convicted by just going abroad because this was before extradition agreements. So he would just like run to another place and be like, now we live here. I've, and he's what like, a time to be alive. Yeah, and he was a family man. Like he just, you know, but that was his racket, okay? He was um, a family man. Did he have families wherever he ran to? Or did he just like no, leave he just, families behind? No, no, they're just, um, they were like an army family, but they were a burglar family. So they just moved. Oh, fun. Yeah. Oh, they moved with him. And keep the family together. That's important. Yeah, okay. yeah. Gavin asks Reg Tucker, who's a car salesman, um, a used car salesman to be part of the gang. He asks him to do reconnaissance work to check out the bank. And Tucker goes to the bank and opens a bank account there and gets a safety gets a safety deposit box. And he will keep going to visit his safety deposit box, in fact, like 13 times. Now, bank practice then is that when you went to your safety deposit box, they would leave you in private alone in the vault so that you could like think about all your money and masturbate. What? That No. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. But they would leave you alone. I don't think it was to masturbate. I think they probably asked that you not do that. And to be clear, that's not the what- The money in the safety deposit box were disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> just was like that's so intense that they like leave you alone. They would never do well, that now. Well, well, yeah, but like, what if it's? I guess because then the bank can't be like, we don't know what's in there. I think it's probably like because they want plausible deniability. You know, uh, yeah, like, I think it's if you just have a privacy, body in there, totally. Or, 
Um, yeah. I think the boxes were too small for a body, but thank you for flagging that. Um, <laughs> well, multiple boxes. <laughs> it's you just can cut a body person up. inside. fucking cases Okay, like there's more inexpensive ways to deal with a body, I think. But when Red, when Tucker was alone, he would not jack off to our knowledge. What he would do is he would use the span of his arms and an umbrella he would bring in to try to start getting the measurements because lucky for him, there's like regulation square tiles on the ground. So it's almost like a grid has already been drawn out for him and he can keep going and kind of craft a blueprint essentially of like, where is everything in this room? What is Whoa. the depth? How how tall are these cabinets? Everything. There's another uh, used car salesman that comes into the picture he gets a bunch of the tools that they need for the break-in because they needed weird stuff like something called a thermal lance and they needed a jack. Like they needed some heavy-duty stuff to break in. They hire another buddy to be their lookout man and a- another guy to be like the explosives expert. Again, very like Ocean's Eleven. Everyone on the team has a specialty and some of them have cute names. One of Gavin's friends, Mickey, known as Skinny. Mickey Skinny Gervais was a burglar alarm expert. There were two men that were never identified called Little Legs and TH. Okay? (laughs) I love that. In May of 1971, the owners of a shop down the street, it's a leather goods shop called Le Sac, and they end up leasing the property to a Benjamin Wolf who is 64 years old. Benjamin Wolf is like, I'm going to sell gadgets, gizmos, knickknacks, but also I happen to be friends with the whole gang I just told you guys about. And the leather shop, get this, just a few doors away, has a basement that is the same depth underground as the vault. So another um, big piece of luck would have it that they're doing a lot of road work during this time, which is setting off alarms in the vault. (gasps) So the people that run the bank are like, we can't keep having these alarms go off. So there are certain times of day, including the weekends, when they shut off the alarms. And somebody who works for the security company knows that and is also part of this gang and lets them know this is when the alarms are off. So they start digging from Lissac Basement to the bank they have to go around the chicken inn which is like a restaurant in between the two i just really like the name of it the chicken inn no notes so they start to dig they dig to the vault they dig a 40 foot tunnel and this tunnel will later be described by the court as a magnificent piece of engineering so good (gasps) fucking good on you the digging is not so but so. Gavin told police that he loses 28 pounds in the process. Like they are Whoa. working their fucking asses off. They begin entry into the vault in September on a Friday, right? Because the weekend is a good time for them to like start right. this mission. There are a few like kind of missteps they have where they're using this crazy 100 ton jack to try to get a hole in this three foot thick concrete that is the floor. 
and they don't know that there's an old well where their tunnel ends and the pressure of the jack pushes them so that they lose the floor of some of their tunnel, which is so scary. Um, so then they are, they're going to use a thermic lance from the used car guy trying to cut through the bottom of the floor and they drill holes in the floor and then they push in basically like gooey explosives. Do you know what I mean? Like an explosive, but it's like, it's called um, gelegnite, I think, but it's, I could be saying that wrong, but what I picture is it's like silly putty, but that you can rig to explode. So they push that in through the hole and then they coordinate to do a blast with the movement of traffic in the area to try to make it so no one can really notice the noise. And they Uh do, they do this big blast and now they have a 12 inch wide hole that goes into the vault and they go, they crawl in and they start prying open all the safety deposit boxes with crowbars. Whoa. Yes. Um, At 11 at night on Saturday, Robert Rollins is like this amateur radio enthusiast and he lives nearby, like half a mile from the bank. He, for some reason on his radio, crosses waves with the bank robbers walkie-talkie conversations. And he's like, what? And he starts listening and he's like, this is super fucking weird. What? He calls the police 30 minutes after listening and he kind of describes what he's hearing and they are like, we think this could be like a prank call. It's a weird call to get. So they're like, "We, you know what, sir, thank you so much for flagging this. Why don't you just record what you're hearing and we'll deal with it later? So he starts to record the conversation he's hearing. And what he's hearing is the bank robbers arguing about whether they should take a break because some of them want to take a break. Some of them are like, let's just get this thing done. The lookout really wants to take a break. And at one point, he says to the guy he's arguing with, money may be your God, but it's not mine. And I'm fucking off. (laughs) Do you love? Love. 2 a.m., so he's been recording have, like honestly they didn't build the same camaraderie as Ocean's Eleven. That's really what the issue is. <laughs> I don't know. I could see those guys be like, "Listen, I need a burger." Like it's we've been doing at this for days. <laughs> like so at two in the morning, Rollins has been recording like two and a half hours, and he's like, "I have a lot of material at this point. I I feel like I I could call again." So he calls and they listen, and Scotland Yards is like. Yeah, this does seem pretty serious. So they send members of what's called the Flying Squad. Sounds cool. Reminded me of the Willendas. Not related. They go to listen to the tapes and they're like, yeah, we do think like this burglary is happening. So what should we do? We don't know where it's happening. So they start contacting security firms and they are like we need to go open the banks like over the weekend and start checking things and they check 750 banks in an eight mile radius the staff goes to the banks the police go to the banks and of course one of the banks they go to is the baker street branch of lloyd's they go at 3 30 the next day and i it feels like the guys are in the vault but they don't go in 
what they check is the outside of the vault. And they're like, it's time locked. It's secure. And they leave. No. Isn't that crazy? Because they can't imagine they've come up through the floor. So they're just like looking at the outside. They're like, yep, it's super locked, super secure. Bye-bye. On the morning of September 13th, the bank staff goes to the vault and sees we have super been burgled. And not only do they see that all those safety deposit boxes are open and stolen, the guys wrote on the wall, let's see how Sherlock Holmes solves this one. Can the you believe audacity, the audacity? The chutzpah, my God. 268 security deposit boxes were opened and the value of property is unknown. They say like it's around nine million today. A hundred. Well, did they find any body parts? They didn't. I'm so glad you oh, asked. Okay. Okay, um, yeah. Well, 120 detectives work on this case. And they didn't do like for how smart these guys were or how like industrious they were. They all they do is they figure out about Wolf from the lease documents of him renting Lissac recently because they find the tunnel, of course. So they're like, oh, who does Lissac belong to? It belongs to this guy, Wolf. And then within four days, they're like, we know all the guys that are friends with Wolf. We have like a list of who's probably has to Jesus. do with this. So then Jesus. they, I know, it's not like that. For how like, oh, you're like, you guys. So they do some surveillance. They do some investigation. They're watching all these guys and they see Tucker, um, go to do a handoff of a bunch of money to these two guys, these um, Abdullah Hashan Ganji and his nephew. And they're they're watching like a handoff of money happening and they bust them. They recover 231,000 pounds that they can identify. This is from the stolen vault during this money right. handoff. So they're like, okay, we know that you had something to do with this. But the heist, it's like... Everyone is freaked out because it was really powerful, rich people that were keeping their money there. And they weren't just keeping money there. It's a safety deposit box. So there was a lot of private, maybe even illegal items that are now gone that they can't claim or can't even like say is missing. The group is dubbed the Millionaire Moles. Love. Love. Love alliteration. Chef's love kiss. I'm, love. So feels like a Sherlock Holmes, you know, it does. One thing that's so fucked, you're not going to believe this. They think about Scotland Yard considers prosecuting that guy, the eavesdropper, Roland, because of the, the wireless telegraphy act of 1967, because he was listening to unlicensed transmissions. <laughs> they don't. They don't do that. In fact, they end up writing him a check for twenty five hundred pounds and thanking him. All as evidence in their trial. It's just really Although crazy that they like were like, should, "Should we prosecute that guy?" It's like, no, that guy is the only reason you saw, like, figured this out. I, well, I, I don't know. They did rent the storefront where the tunnel was connected to. That feels a little bit like they would have found them anyway. So. Then the trial happens, and they're going to be prosecuting Gavin, Wolf, Stevens, and Tucker. They're not able to, like, link um, Brian. Skinny Legs? They're not. They don't know who Skinny Legs is. 
They don't know who TH. TH is, and they're not able to link our friend Brian Reeder to the crime. So the trial becomes about Gavin, Wolf, Stevens, and Tucker, and those two Ganges brothers. And it happens in January of 1973. The Ganges brothers get off. They're basically found not guilty. They weren't, they didn't, you know, they were, there was a handoff they of were money. Just the handoff, they were yeah. not doing the crime. Stevens, Tucker, and Gavin plead guilty. Wolf pleads not guilty. Stevens, Tucker, and Gavin get 12 years, and Wolf, who pleads not guilty and is just the guy that rented the Lissac, yeah. he gets eight years. So shorter. He maybe right. had less to do with the crime. He also, I, I don't know. But again, cannot prove Brian Reed. Brian Reeder was there. In then 64 citizens whose safety deposit boxes were broken into Sue Lloyd's, the bank. One of the reasons they're suing is that they say they took the property that's that was still available to them or that was recovered and they put it on tables and let the people who had safety deposit boxes walk through and be like, that's mine. That's mine. <gasps> and they did it when people were unsupervised. And he, this guy that was a witness to this was like, I was there. There was a diamond sitting on a table. And I'm a jeweler. That shit was worth a lot. Like, this was mishandled in a totally crazy way where it was just like, yeah, uh, that that's that belongs to me. Like, so, so crazy. So like, robbery basically sort of yielded more theft in a way. Probably. I can't imagine people were honest about that. There's also a bunch of conspiracy theories that are roped into this because supposedly what happened after this was that the British government issued what's called a D-notice. That is a demand that news coverages end their coverage, like stop talking about this robbery. And they say, oh, it's because there was concerns over national security that we did that. But people think that's not why they did it. They think that they did it because one of those safety deposit boxes had compromising photographs, probably sexual in nature, of Princess Margaret. <gasps> and that they say they think these thieves... The, the, the being used for blackmail, probably, and that these thieves that broke in were actually hired by M15 to pretend it was like a big bank heist, but just to fucking get the oh. photos. Interesting. There's I mean, also rumors that there was a cabinet minister abusing children and that photos proving that were found. There is no evidence to wow. support either of these claims. But, but it's in, good to know that, like, politicians and pedophilia, uh, as we see it now, existed in England in the 70s. Is this like a tale? Like, does this well, with happen? Princess like, it feels Margaret, like a little- with Princess Margaret, I think it had to do with, like, she went on, like, a, a beach trip at one point and somebody took pictures right. of her that showed her, like, with a pool guy or something. Like, something where it was, like, or Gardner, it was, like, this princess has sex with people she shouldn't and... We're and we can go public with this. And then supposedly she was getting blackmailed. So 
Here's the thing. If you're interested in that, and I am, and I haven't had time to do it, there's a 2008 movie called The Bank Job that I haven't seen, and it's all about this, and it takes that angle. Like, it exploits that as the story. But it's not just Hollywood being like, what if that were true? They said they had sources that said (gasps) that is what happened, and that they're like, there are people, we cannot reveal our sources, that basically were like telling us what actually happened, and we made this movie about that. So you think that this bank job could have been orchestrated by M15 and the Royals? I don't know that it was orchestrated by them, but hmm, huh. I, you know what? Here's the thing. I don't know. What I will tell you is that there's a bunch of records that were released to the National Archives in 2013 that are related to this. But that there is 800 pages of information that has not been released that remains closed. And do you know when they're going to release it? When? 2071. So hold on to your butts. Eat healthy. All right. So listen. We got to make it. You and I, we're going to 2007. It's 50 years from now. We'll be 80. We're going to come back and do an episode. I'm going to be 90, girl. Let's do it. All right. Let's do it. Let's do it. Well, it'll so be our well, that'll be our next public TDC. <laughs> right. Totally. Perfect. <laughs> our exclusivity is. But that's good. That's good. So some of the reasons people think that there's more to the story is that why was Brian Reeder, who was supposedly the head of this gang, he completely escaped justice in this instance. Right. Then as Wild. recently you're going to die as recent as. 2021, I found an article that said there were crooked cops that extorted a third of the money that was taken by the robbers. And an insider says two of the robbers gave their entire share to the police and that Reader, who was involved, gave a bunch of money to the police to escape jail time. And that like a million ended up in the hands of these crooked cops. And Scotland Yard Detective Inspector Alec Iced was said to have been one of these officers that for sure took money from this gang in this instance. And then this independent article that I read says he is TH. (gasps) Yeah. Isn't that crazy? And this was a 2021 article. Whoa. Yeah, really wild. Brian Reeder, who did, once again, I'm going to say it again, didn't serve any time for this. He then, in 2015, masterminded the Hatton Garden Safe Deposit Company Heist. It's 44 years after the heist I just told you about. Right. And $21 million in cash and jewels got stolen. It was the largest burglary in English history. And all the perpetrators of it were career criminals, and they were all in their 60s and 70s. It was all six old men. They all got arrested. When is that movie coming out? I know. When is that movie coming out? Well, it is. It came out. And guess who plays Brian Reeder? Who? Michael Caine, obviously. Hell yeah. Wait, what's the movie? The Bank Job? The movie is... It came out in 2018, and it's called King of Thieves. 
oh, I hope it's on the plane. When so I, good, I was on the plane right? Tonight. So they all got oh arrested. They all pled guilty. They all got prison sentences. The reason it feels like it's like Brian Reeder's signature on it and that he had to do with this first heist is that there was a lot in common. Like they carried it out on the holiday weekend. They tunneled into the safety deposit vault with heavy equipment. They had walkie-talkies. They had outside men. I like that they had walkie-talkies. Like, it's 2015, and they were like... Well, they're 60 and 70. Have you taught a 60 and 70-year-old to how use to an iPhone? <laughs> Come like, on. forget it. Where's the walkie-talkie? They're like, talkie? absolutely not. And I think that probably benefited them because people are like, I mean, how... Who's who's really streaming walkie-talkies now? They're called the diamond... Like some... They called them the diamond geezers. Ugh. I am obsessed with that. You're going to be obsessed too with the nicknames that the CCTV footage, they they got CCTV footage of them doing this and they, before they had like identities, they called them Mr. Ginger, Mr. Strong, Mr. Montana, the gent, the tall man, and the old man. <laughs> I love that. Better than TH, better than those code names. So it ends kind of happily. It ends a little bit happily, actually, where what happened to Brian Reeder, who today is 83, is that he handed over 6% of his cut of the raid. But he was supposed to hand over all of it, but he only did 6%. But they're basically like, you have a f- like however long to give us the rest of this money. He had until April of 2019 to give them the money. To pay back all the money. Or he was was going COVID. Well, or he was going to face seven years in prison. He did not hand back the money. He handed over six percent of what they think his take was. But he has prostate cancer, he has strokes, he has dementia, and a judge was like, forget it. You don't have to go to jail. Stop. Do you think he actually has dementia? Yeah, I mean, he's an old man. Or do you think it's like a Tom Girardi kind of case? Ooh. Good question. Good Shot question, fired. Um, Shot I, yeah. to Erica Jane, don't come for me. I know, you can't piss her off. Um, I, You know what? I don't know. I just, um, I don't know. I, I feel like there's a lot of unanswered questions in this story, but it's a good story, so I had to fucking tell it. And it's awesome. Also, the fact that they have CCTV of them doing it all because they didn't have that technology before. <laughs> just so good. Wow. And these old men just like. Um, I just think how sweet. How sweet. They're doing what they love. Oh, I know what I could do. Let me show you. I'm going to. Because this Text is um, a visual medium. I just <laughs> let me show you something. I'm going to show you. These are these are the guys that did the robbery. Stop. Pretty cute, right? Who's Brian Reader? Anyway, sweet, sweet criminal. Had to lay that on upon ye. Ah, oh, thank ye. You're welcome. <laughs> thank ye. Um, I'm doing a story now. Yeah, do it. Um, it's Lawrence Joseph Bader. Have you heard of him? No. I got this from Mental Floss, Medium, and Wikipedia. So Lawrence Bader, Lawrence Joseph Bader, is born in 1926 in Akron, Ohio. So. A little bit about him. During World War II, he was in the Navy. Maybe it's because of the Top Gun vibes. I just was really drawn to this story. Um, He meets his wife, Mary Lou, and they're married in 1952. They have three kids. It's 1957. There's one kid on the way. He's an amateur archer. And at the time, he's a cookware salesman for Lifetime Distributors. 
<laughs> hey, welcome to the family. Ah, we love to see it. His boss is this guy, Fritz. Fritz likes him, and he's just like a good guy. He's well-liked by everyone. Everyone is into this guy, Lawrence, Larry. They love him. So in 1957, Larry tells his wife, he's like, hey, Mary Lou, listen, I got to run to Cleveland for business. And on my way back, I'm going to do a little fishing. And she's pregnant with their three kids at home. And she's like, all right, Larry, do you. So catch some bass. We'll make it for dinner. Catch some bass. Let's Throw it on the barbie. Yes. So he goes and he rents a boat. And it's on Lake Erie. Have you heard of it? I have. Already creepy. Lake Erie. It's, it's known to be very eerie. It's known to be eerie. I mean, eerie. I mean, airy. I don't know. So he's on a trip and he puts down a whole $15 deposit. It's very expensive. And the man renting them the boat is like, hey, listen, there's a big storm coming. You need to be careful. It's not safe out there. And he's like, yeah, 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 yeah. I'm an archer. Let's move on. So he rents this boat. He goes out. He says he's not concerned about the storm, but he did ask for the boat to have lights on it. With him, he had a suitcase. That's it, which feels like a weird thing to bring on a fishing trip, a suitcase. So there is a massive storm. He's even like leaving the dock and there's a boat coming in. It's like, yo, dude, there's a huge storm coming. And he's like, nah, 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 I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. And this is like a motorized boat. So he's going out to the Lake Erie and there's a massive storm. And wouldn't you know it, Lawrence is missing. Dang they can't it. find him. Dang this lady's it. got know, three, almost four kids. Not a good look. Oh, that not blows. good. Well, to make matters worse, the next morning they find the boat and it's on the bank, like five miles away from the boat rental place, and it's empty. Sans him. Yeah. Sans him, sans suitcase. There's one of the propellers is bent. The hull was scratched. There's no evidence that the boat capsized or tipped over, but a single oar was missing and the gas can was empty. And what's really scary is all of the life jackets on the boat are accounted for. Eesh. So obviously they search for him, but there's no real evidence as to where he is. I mean, they they don't know. So it's 1960. And they declare him dead. He has life insurance. His wife has paid out like $40,000. She starts collecting social security for him. She's a single mother now of four kids. It's so sad. That's horrible. Flash forward. It's February 2nd, 1965. How many years has it been? He disappeared in 57. So it's been about eight years. He disappeared in 57. He was declared dead in 1960, and it's 1965. And this woman, Suzanne Peka, she gets a call. She's in Ohio. She gets a call from someone in Chicago who's like at a sporting goods convention. And she gets a call and she's like, hey, you got to come here. You got to see something. And in the article that I read, it was very much like she got a call saying she needed to see something. So she flew to Chicago. Chances are, I really think that he probably like gave her a hint as to what she was going to see. <laughs> You're not going to believe this. this. 
You're not going to believe this. You got to go all the way from Ohio to Chicago. Quick. And then, and then it's just see? a really big ball of yarn or something. And you're like, damn it's the it. biggest rocking chair. Or it's a raccoon ah, in somebody's up. yard. And they were doing something cute, but they aren't anymore by the time you get there. <laughs> Stop. <laughs> damn it. It's, it's her kid who walked one step. And then they were like, oh, actually, they haven't walked since. You know, we all know that life. So... She travels across the states. She goes to Ohio, to Indiana, to Chicago. That's the order, in case geology fans, ge- geology, geography fans out there, fucking hell. In case you like so, rocks. So she goes in and she sees this guy, and he's in front of an archery booth. And he has brown hair. He's like got a thin mustache and an eye patch. The eye patch was a... Uh, from the removal of a malignant tumor in this guy's eye that was treated a year ago. But she looks at him and she's like, huh, you look a lot like my uncle Larry who went missing on Lake Erie. Like you look just like my fucking uncle Larry. So she goes up to this guy at this Chicago sporting goods event. And she's like, aren't you my uncle Larry? And he's like, no, my name is John Johnson. Oh, man. That's a really, really great name. I wonder how long it took him to come up with it. I'm going to repeat that. John Johnson. But he was like, but I picture my friends him looking around, too, and all he can see is a sign that says John. So he's like, John Johnson. And you're just lucky he wasn't like, my name is Bagel Building. He did have an eye patch on. So imagine like a mustache and an eye patch from like removing that tumor. And he's like, John Johnson. <laughs> Wait. Okay. His name is John Johnson, but all of his friends, they call him Fritz. Oh. They call him Fritz. Okay. Uh-oh. So a little bit about John jo- John Fritz Johnson. He lives in Omaha and he is the sports director for a local TV station. Like. He's actually from Omaha. Mm-hmm. And Suzanne is like, you know what? This John Fritz Johnson, he looks just like my fucking uncle. So she hops on the horn and she calls Larry's two brothers. And she's like, listen, you guys got to come. I'm not going to tell you what it is, but you just got to get out of play. And they're like, is this a raccoon in the yard? And she's like, not telling. <laughs> so they get on a plane and they fly over to Chicago and they land and they go and see him and they're like brother Larry and he's like nope not me John Johnson and they're like okay 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 but here's the deal will you please come with us to the police station to get fingerprinted because our brother was in the Navy and his fingerprints will be on file can you please just come with us to prove you're not him and John Johnson is like sure okay I'll go with you. So John Johnson comes with Larry's brothers to the police station to get fingerprinted. They're sent out. The FBI, who has his records, reports back that, would you guess it? They are the same fingerprints. He's Larry. This is him. Now, the man, John Johnson, has apparently, this is what I will say, he has no memory of his life with them whatsoever. He has... 30 years of amnesia, Quinn. What they think happened is, what they think happened is 
he went out on the boat, the storm hit, and he wound up 700 miles away. And so what we know happened, three to five days after the boat disappeared, this guy, John Johnson, shows up in Omaha. Is this Omaha? I think so. Yeah, in Omaha at a restaurant. And he has with him a suitcase a canvas bag and a Navy issued license that has his name, John Johnson on it. So he walks into the restaurant and he's like, Hey, I'm looking for a bar, a bar job. He also had like a book that's like how to make drinks. And so he's like, listen, I I just would love a job. And I, I actually don't have a lot of previous experience because I've been with the Navy for 14 years. And they're like, wait, what's that book? And he's like, what this, how to fake your own death and become a bartender for dummies. Just Wait. something I'm reading. It gets crazier, Quinn. So after 14 years is what he says in the Navy, they're like, they're patriotic. They're like, sure, let's hire this guy. He gets the job. When people ask him his name, John Johnson, I think everybody kind of has the same reaction we did. And he's like, you know what? I was raised in an orphanage in Boston. That's his story. And that people call him Fritz. So he's known by Fritz from here on out. And here's a little thing about Fritz. He was a fun guy. Like, life of the party. He went on dates. He partied. He loved it. He actually drove an old hearse with pillows in the back so he could lay down. Um, He listened to classical music. He was very good at archery. Um, And what's interesting is, like, the life that he led is very different from the conservative place that he left in Ohio. And in addition to bartending, he was really interested in being a broadcaster. So he ended up going to a local radio station and he, at night after he would bartend, he would go and he would practice his broadcasting skills. And in 1959, he was hired by that radio station two years after being a bartender. He was hired by that radio station. He became incredibly well-known and eventually he got promoted to a TV station where he was a television station's sports director. I mean, he was like an Omaha celebrity and he was also like a bit of a daredevil. He was a showman kind of guy, right? He was into archery, which if you remember, he was into also as Larry. Um, But at one point to raise money for polio, he sat in a box on top of a 50 foot tall flagpole and he was there for 15 days. Like he was an Omaha celebrity. Huh. In 1961, he meets this gal, Nancy Zimmer, who's a widow who has a child from her previous marriage. They get together. They get married. They have a kid. And it's not until 1965 that he is discovered or found. But what we now know is that the life that he left, he wasn't good with money. There was some debt. He fell behind on his taxes and he didn't file a tax return from 1951 to 1957. And on his way out to the boat for that trip that he had weird amnesia, he cashed a check for $400. He paid some bills, including the premium for a life insurance policy. But now that he's been found, that $40,000 payout that his first wife, Mary Lou, received is now being called into question because he is, in fact, alive. In addition, his social security benefits that were being paid to his wife and kids, that's all. So he's he's getting in a lot of money trouble or they don't know how to sort of adjudicate this because it doesn't feel like you should take the money from the family who lost him and was like, we didn't even know. Like, 
they have to prove that he has amnesia or that he's a fraud. They have to prove it. And but he so doesn't have is- amnesia because if you have amnesia, I don't think – I could be wrong. I don't think that a symptom of amnesia is an invented past life. I think you would wake up and know you have amnesia, which is to say you'd walk into a bar and not say – can I make cocktails? I went to, I, this is my history. I grew up in an orphanage and was in the army. Maybe. You would say, I don't know who I am. Can I make cocktails? And they would say, you sound drunk. Please leave. So what's interesting, though, is that he does have parts of his old life and his new life, right? He was archery. He was in the Navy for two years versus 14 years. You're totally right. I think your blink is right. My blink was certainly there as well. But I also think what's also, in addition to the money troubles that he had, he also was in big trouble with that boat rental place. Mm -hmm. They were like, listen, Mm -hmm. you damaged that boat. We want the money back for that boat, which also (laughs) feels pretty pretty low on the list of priority. But I love that the boat (laughs) owner was like, like, hey, "Hey, we remember you. (laughs) You, you schmuck. We're missing an oar and our propeller was bent. How dare you? Those oars are expensive. When you go on rafting trips, people are like, don't lose the oar. You can't lose the oar. But also... Because he was still alive, he was still married to Mary Lou. So technically, he was a bigamist because he married this Nancy woman. So like Nancy leaves him because she's like, our marriage is null and void. Like, you're not who you say you are. What the fuck is going on? So Fritz hires a lawyer to sort of help with the issue of, is he really faking it? Is he, you know, and after 10 days of psychological testing, the doctors couldn't say if he was willingly fooling everyone. No one could prove he committed fraud. His lawyer really? argued, remember that? His Remember that tumor in his eye that he had his eye removed? Yeah. They think that his memory was affected by that tumor. So Fritz's life falls apart. You know, his wife leaves him. He gets fired from the station. He goes back to being a bartender. While he's a bartender, he's paying out child support to Mary Lou now. And in addition to Nancy, um, you know, his life is crumbled. But I mean, uh, when he meets, when he finally meets Mary Lou face to face, because I think for a long time, she's like, I don't want to fucking see that guy. What's going on? Mm -hmm. They finally do agree to meet face to face. And he doesn't recognize her. And he has no memory of meeting her. Either he's like an incredible actor and like a sociopath. I don't know. I don't know. This was in the 50s. I can't, you know, I haven't looked up old TV appearances from one-eyed John Johnson Fritz. So if you washed ashore with a suitcase and that part, can we just like note that however crazy the storm he confronted he and his suitcase were not separated. Okay. We don't, his know, wait, suitcase, we don't know if it's the same suitcase in question. His we suitcase know that, he that he packed just... to go fishing. <laughs> so he and his suitcase wash ashore. And he does not say, wait, I need medical attention. I was just in a storm and washed ashore. I should get checked out. Slash, my memory feels a little foggy. Maybe I should tell someone. Like, he never told anyone that he had any (laughs) sneaking suspicion. I'm sorry. I'm not Fritz, John Johnny, John Johnson, John Rooney. I am not feeling it. Larry, Lawrence, Joseph Bader. Um, In 1966, his cancer comes back. But this time it's in his liver. 
And the cancer, he succumbs to complications of cancer. He dies at the age of 39 in 1966. Ooh, young. Very young. But keep in mind, he was discovered as But keep in mind, John he lived Johnson two lives. So he, he was actually, he was actually 80. <laughs> he lived twice over. <laughs> What's even crazier is that when he died, he had two funerals the first funeral he had in omaha as fritz so like all the people who knew him as fritz mourned him and then his body was flown to akron ohio where he had a funeral as lawrence and i'm sure that was a i mean death is so hard but i death is so hard death is hard but and you know you can quote me on that i'm probably the first person to ever say that death is hard but I, i can imagine like his ex, his wife and kids who lost him in 19, who was declared dead in 1960, I, it probably felt maybe they're, hopefully they had a little bit of closure, you know, laying him to rest. And then his body was buried, ultimately buried in Ohio as Lawrence. Um, it's quoted as saying one of the most baffling amnesia disappearances on record. And it's a weird story forever unanswered. But I had to tell the story of Lawrence Joseph Bader. It's so crazy. Like, he basically got away with it. I mean, his life crumbled, right? Like, he lost his wife. He lost his, you know. But at the same time, like, it doesn't feel like he was punished that much. Like, no jail time, no charges, I believe, were leveled against him because he died before any of that sort of could happen. And that woman raised his four kids alone. Yeah. And he, and then was so insane. And then he saw his kids and was like, good to meet you. I'm John Johnny. Like, I imagine. (laughs) God. What a nightmare. I like imagine him going like, if, okay, there's two things. One, he's telling the truth. And there's something about them cutting his eye out. Quinn is shaking her head, doing the smug. No. Let's say he could have been telling the truth. Okay. That's one option. It's the crazier option. It's the craziest option. Mm-hmm. But there's a possibility, it, be it a very slim possibility. Okay. But the other option is that he he goes to meet his wife, like in the middle and wherever in Chicago from Omaha to Ohio, they meet in Chicago. And he shows up and he has to do that thing where he's like looking for a stranger, even though he knows exactly <laughs> who she is. Oh, and oh, he has to be hey. like, you, ma'am. And then I, I assume he like goes up to another woman. It's Deliberate. like, Mary Lou, is that you? And she's like, I'm right here, Larry. <laughs> you know who I am. Larry, I'm fucking here. I've been raising your four goddamn kids. Quit and the you left us with shit. Debt. You didn't pay any taxes for six years. I got a 40000 payout, and now they're asking for it back. And the boat company keeps calling. <laughs> and that ding, ding, dong boat rental place wants me to fix a goddamn propeller. When you died, they had sympathy. But when you came back to life, they were like, listen, you signed a contract. I Ugh, need that money for the, the propeller thing. and the oar. If, if you're going to fake your own death, you need to keep a lower profile. I think that's just like you don't <laughs> get to have your cake and eat it too. And that's what he was trying. He, he was like new life, living life to the fullest. Like he had what you would kind of call a public position as far as being um, it, what was it? A radio? He was a TV. No, he was a T. He was like oh, sports TV. director on TV. Oh my god! He was god. initially radio, dummy. and then he was TV. At the same time, listen, I don't condone faking your death. I don't condone leaving a wife and four children, a, and frankly, the fourth child he never met. She was pregnant when he disappeared. Mm. 
What I will say, though, is let's all learn a lesson from Larry, Fritz, John Johnson. Follow your passion. You know, I mean, I think he disappeared, and I'm using air quotes. He disappeared, but he went on to live a life. He had a hearse, you know, he dated (laughs) He uh, taught himself radio, which let's be honest, more the same. We taught ourselves podcasts. He taught himself radio. And he went on to be on TV because he followed his bliss. And also he died right before, right when the shit hit the fan. And so I think, you know what, the last seven years, he was doing what he wanted to do before he died. I'm going to have a little bit of like a moment where I'm like, you know what, John Johnson, if that's what you, if Fritz is what I'll call you, get at it, you know? I don't love how you did it, but the last seven years of your life is something that you wanted to live. I can give him credit for that. Yeah, maybe he knew that he was uh, life was going to be short. Maybe he had that feeling. And Do you was know like, what I, I Life know, is so a- short. I just deserve to have a couple of them. <laughs> I just got to pack as many lives in here as possible. But like, you know, if you were going to die early and you weren't happy and you were in debt, I, you know, I could see the motive to be like, I mean, he didn't know he was going to die early. That just feels like poetic justice in a lot of ways. It's poetic justice that he, justice that he yeah. drove a fucking hearse. <laughs> Who drives a hearse? Would you date a guy when, that drives a hearse? It depends. Honestly, it depends. Okay. It depends. Good Ghostbusters, answer. wasn't that originally a hearse? I mean, what's the paint job like, right? Exactly. Like, that's sure. the thing. If you're getting a hearse, I want it to feel like a limo. Oh, I want it to be painted like Ghostbusters. I want it to be themey. Well, I mean, or go- limo, just like not black. Black is too, but like like do like um, like morbid. a prom like a prom limo. Mm-hmm. Like what in that like pimp my ride. Like what I would do if I got a hearse, I would go back in time and I would be in the early two thousands and I'd go on to pimp my. How ride. How did the hearse like, just turn into a time machine? It's well, just a hearse. You asked Harry. what I wanted. It's not. You asked what I wanted, Quinn. I said I would go back in time to pimp my ride, and I would have them soup up my hearse in the back. We could like watch movies. I'm sure there'd be a fridge back there. Got could a lot of room. Parking, but parking would be a bitch. I can't parallel park, so I I, I wouldn't <laughs> I think that learning on a hearse would be very helpful. I would have them install a back camera so that I could just, you know, check it out. That's smart. But finding parking would be miserable. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's my, and honestly, that's my one complaint about driving a hearse is the parking. Your ass is always sticking out. Mm-hmm. I, want, I wonder what it feels like to drive a hearse around just because of the, like, vibe of people that you drive by and they're, you know. It's so sad. Well, I don't know. Well, I always said it say- earlier and I'll, I said it once and I'll say it before. Death is sad. It's, yeah, it's, is that what you said? And I think death, death, is hearse, death is hard. Death is hard. Death is hard. Death is hard. And I think a hearse riding by does remind you of mortality. So, like, what if we did, like, a fun, like, party hearse? And then what's nice is then when I die, I have sort of the transportation covered. At least you've got that covered. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and death is so uncertain. You really want to have you any problem you solved ever that you say can. That. Death is uncertain. Has anyone said that before? We're really coining you? a lot of like interesting new ideas on this show. It's like we're going out and we're leaving you our best thoughts and material before we go. And I couldn't be prouder of this episode. So proud of us? Yeah. Oh. Proud of us. Are you guys proud of us? Remember, it's not goodbye. It's good day to you and see you in a few days slash. It's actually, what's funny is you're going to be getting more content from us yeah. in this arrangement. Because you're going to get a weekly thing. true crime podcast like you a always did. Yeah. 
But then you're also obviously going to join Patreon where you get two bonus episodes a and month. maybe more. Like, listen, when things, when we start to get this thing sort of situated, maybe we'll release more shit. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. All right. I mean, I feel like maybe ending with the trailer might be the move. All right. And now a word from ourselves as the <gasps> tr- two new hosts of Lifetime's new true crime podcast. Crime of a, a lifetime. lifetime. <laughs> We're going to get better at that. We are. I thought that was good, though, for a first try. <laughs> Wait, you can do um, crime of a lifetime. Of a- Ready? <laughs> Ready? Crime of a lifetime. lifetime. <laughs> um, Dear readers, we love you so much, and we will see you next week, and we will see you on Patreon for more content of what the hell is going on in our lives. And... If you are um, just a fan of the show or a Patreon subscriber and there's anything, um, any like particular memory you have of the last 130 episodes, something funny that happened, some kind of story that really stuck with you and surprised you, feel free to write us this week because we're going to be reflecting uh, next week and we'd love to hear from you and it might get included in the episode. I love, 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 love that. Okay, Quinn, should we play them our trailer for Crime of a Lifetime? Let's do it. Headlines seize our attention, especially when they're about a crime. Ugly situation down in Atlantic City right now. Police there say they are making progress tonight in the investigation of the murders of four women. Right now, police are trying to find the identity of a headless, legless, armless body found in Westchester. Many young brown-haired women in Queens are worried about their safety because of the 44 caliber killer. But there's more to these stories than just their headlines. I'm Carrie Ipema. And I'm Quinlan Posner. And we're just two friends who love true crime. We are a relationship gone right, but we're going to talk to you a lot about relationships gone wrong. Every week we'll bring you a real crime that made the headlines. One you may have heard of before, or one you may have never imagined possible. But we'll take you beyond what you see on the front page. We'll follow the story as it happens in real time and use hindsight to pull apart fact from fiction. How was the story told then? And can we tell it better now? From bandit queens and vindictive lovers to neighborhood stalkers and the innocent people tied up in their webs of deceit. Their headlines reel us in, but their stories keep us wondering, what if it were me? From Lifetime comes a brand new weekly podcast, Crime of a Lifetime. New episodes every Tuesday, starting June 14th. Subscribe now and listen wherever you get your podcasts. Love you! Bye.